multi-award-winning music agent, Emma Banks. So apart from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who else are you particularly close to then? Oh, goodness, that's like... Florence who, and the who Machine. Are, who are your favourite children? Yes. Yeah, I mean, Florence is an artist that I have worked with since before her first album came out. And it's been fantastic watching her career develop, you know, Florence develop as an artist. You know, the, I think the way that people gain confidence from the very start of a career where you know that they're really talented, but they still have to learn, as we all do, how to deal with that and how to, you know, present yourself on stage and get that confidence in front of an audience. You know, Florence has been an amazing artist to work with and she really is, she's one in a million. She's top of her game. I'm really lucky that I work with people like Florence and like Lord, Arcade Fire, Katy Perry, you know, these people that are so talented and in so many ways, it's just phenomenal to me and that Ka- I get and, to do it. And Katy Perry, or, again, you're pretty close to her. I, I love Katy. I, I mean, the, you know, the, what's interesting about Katy, compared to so many other artists that you may put as a pop artist, and when you're a pop artist, you don't generally play the dirty clubs. You release lots of records and then you suddenly turn up at an arena. And Katy Perry didn't do that because Katy Perry's a musician. She went out and she did what's called the Warp Tour, which doesn't actually exist anymore, which was a touring rock tour in America. So it was a big, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 artists every night in a different city, most of whom were, you know, guys with spiky hair wearing black jeans. And then there's Katy Perry doing it. And I think she learned a a lot from doing that, but she also showed that she could go out and rock with anyone else. The first gig she ever did in the UK was at a pub in King's Cross called the Water Rats. It holds 150, 200 people. And she built her career by doing that. So I I was always sceptical about Katy Perry because I didn't see her coming up. Suddenly she didn't exist. Then suddenly she was there, you know, right at the top of the tree. And I thought, or is this manufactured? Because sometimes you think that. And then I saw her perform, I think it was at the Music Cares Dinner in LA just before the Grammys mm. a few years ago. And I thought, wow, you know, she's really good. Because oh, yeah. um, normally the ones that come up the hard way are the ones that have learned all of the all of the skills to be able to deliver. And and she's one of those rather than some of the, someone that's just, you know, because there are people manufactured as well, aren't there, that are slightly manufactured. Yeah. There are. Um, no, I mean, Katie's, uh, you can't find anyone that's anything that works much harder. You know, she, her schedule, particularly if she's in album promo mode, it can literally be, you know, Mexico City on Tuesday, Sydney, Australia on Thursday, back to LA, then into London. And it's not just all the traveling, it's the getting up. And, you know, society expects women, female artists, whatever, to often look very different to the expectation for men. And that's obviously a gross generalization, but I think as you know, society can be pretty nasty if you look like you've just got out of bed as a woman, whereas that could be a look if you're a guy in the rock and roll world. Well, you're right. I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of, male artists do trade on the fact that they look like they just got out of yeah. bed. Whereas a woman, you can't do that. You're absolutely right. You've got to be looking immaculate. You know, you never see Taylor Swift with her hair out of place, do you really? No, I don't think. Not, not if she can help it. 
because you know how cruel everybody can be. Carl Layton Pope. And then Michael Bublé, so... Well, Bublé, Bruce Allen called me... How, how come both Michael Bublé and Brian Adams are both from... Vancouver. Yeah, why? Why? What's the Vancouver well, Bruce connection? Allen is the key. So Bruce Allen managed uh, Loverboy, ten, uh, he managed Backman Turner Overdrive, Loverboy, and Brian Adams. So we had been together for 20 years, coming up to the millennium. And in 2001, I got a white label in the post, like a CD with... Yeah. So anyway, so... I played it and it was a load of covers. It was a Bee Gees song, a George Michael song, but the voice was good. And and it said, call Bruce. That's all he said. Yeah. So I phoned him up and he said, I'm going to manage Michael Bublé. And I said, who is Michael Bublé? He said, well, Warners have signed him. They like it. He lives in Vancouver. He's a Vancouver boy. He's been to see me. I'm going to do it. And you're going to do it. Get used to it. I went, okay. So they showcased him in Paris and I flew over to Paris and he sang all of me and about four other songs with a little trio in a hotel. And I'm I cut that Ronnie Scotts thing still lives very large with me. Those songs, I know all those songs. And so I stood there watching him and I thought, you know, this kid can do it. So we brought him to London. John Reed was running Warner Brothers at the time. So this was before he this was before yeah, he broke at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All going on long before anybody knew who he was. Mm. So Reedy was at Warner's. And Reedy had worked, had run A&M Records in Toronto. So him and Bruce Allen were very close. Uh So Reedy basically put his hand up for it and said, whatever it is, we'll take care of it. So um, I brought him into London. We showcased him for Warners. And John Reed's assistant, who was lovely, came over and said to me, what do you think of him? I said, he's got a really, really good voice and I like him. He's got a real personality. She said, he was singing all of me. And she said, he writes all his own songs, you know. And I said, yeah, all right, love, you know. Not believing, yeah, but I mean, all of me. Come on, I think if he'd written that, he'd yeah. be 103 years old. So, yeah. but I thought I thought something interesting about what she said was that if she thinks that that's his song, then a lot of other young are going to think his yeah, songs yeah. are standard songs, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I ran into Tony Bennett in the Ivy Club, who said that, and I met him a couple of times. So we sort of, you know, we kind of recognise each other, and he said. It's about the message. He said, Bublé will carry the message to the new young. And so that's when we got Michael Parkinson involved. And I know Parky. Yeah. And so we, Michael, I knew that Michael Parkinson would love him. I knew. Yeah, yeah. And so delivered him to Parky's show. And suddenly, and then and then Warner said, we're going to put the record out, deedly dee. And I said, great. And they said, we want to put him in a theatre in London on a Sunday. And I said, no. And Bruce Allen was always good with me. When when I put Brian Adams on the Tina tour, me and Bruce Adams, me and Bruce Adams stood firm mm. with AM Records. And Bruce said, What does Carl think we should do? And I said, he's got to do a week at Ronnie's. He's got to do six nights, two shows a night, and buy and we will sell it out. So there's people round the block going crazy mm. to get in. And we did at Ronnie Scott's. At Ronnie's. And we did it the first week of December. And your old friend, John Reed, who managed Elton John. Remember John Reed, lovely yeah, yeah, John yeah, Reed? Yeah, yeah. He phoned me up on a Thursday, and the first thing he said, which is always lovely when people say it, oh, Friday he phoned me. He phoned me Friday and said, we're friends, aren't we? When people say that, you know. You know they want something. They want something. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. I said, of course we are, John. I love you. You know I love you. I've always loved you. And he said, 
do you love me enough to get me a table for eight for tomorrow night at Ronnie's? I said, you've been three times already. I know, but Michael Bublé, we love him. We absolutely love him. Anyway, so I knew, so what I did was I booked two nights at, um, at uh, the Albert Hall for, for, for the following October, 11 months away, because I knew it was going to happen. And my son, Toby, who's a promoter, who's wearing a Live Nation, so it were, they were his shows. And he loved Bublé and he loved Adams and Bruce Allen. So we put the whole team together and we had a run at it. The record flew out. Parkinson embraced it. Everybody loved the kid, but it was still a covers record. Mm. And it was a covers record that was just a covers record. Mm. And it was him. And you know what's interesting, Chris? And I wanted to talk to you about this when I knew I was coming to see you. If you think, right, about your career in the music business, and most of the acts on Chrysalis Records broke because of a hit single. Look yeah. at Blondie, yeah. look at all those. They had that those that big yeah. hit yeah. and you were able to run at it yeah. with yeah. your machine yeah. and turn it into something great. Yeah. I didn't have that with Michael Bublé. So I could, with Brian Adams I had it because of a reckless record. Yes. But I, Michael Bublé needed to be Michael Bublé and the music would follow rather than the other way around. Mm. We couldn't lead it with the music. Mm. Because everybody said... Well, so he doesn't it. really write then? Well, he, he did. That's the whole point. But when we got to the second album, he co-wrote a song called Home. Mm. And Home was the three minutes. It was the game changer. Mm. And suddenly, and when we sold, we sold 10 nights at the O2, 160,000 tickets. We sold them in a day, one day. Massive. That's huge. You know? So Robin Miller... So Shardy was a group originally. It was called Pride. But but she was the backing singer. Who she, was the backing singer? Shardy. So the, the name of the group was Shardy. The name of the group was Pride. Oh, Sade the name was of the backing group. singer. Oh, right. And she had one spot in their set where she sang Be Thankful for What You've Got. Yeah. It's old classic. And it became clear, so I'm told, that when she did her song, the atmosphere in the place completely changed. And plus, of course, she looked extraordinary. And so the very gracious singer apparently said, I think you should take over as lead singer and I'll become... Was it a male or female singer? Female female singer. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Um, So Sade, in a very Sade-like way, said, um, you know, it'd be simpler. The The problem with bands, multiple identities... Why don't we change the name of the band to Sade? <laughs> and mm. and the band, she's a difficult person to argue with, you know. So the band, oh, all right then. So we'll change the name to Sade. So we recorded the same versions of Smooth Operator and Your Love Is King that are on that record, Diamond Life Today. We never we never even mixed them again. But they went round to all the record companies, and um, we they all turned them down. But Sade was dating a guy called Robert Elms, mm-hmm. journalist. Mm-hmm. At the time, a very kind of in-the-know mm-hmm. journalist. And he was working for ID and The Face. And he got her onto the cover of The Face, saying, The Face of 1984. And he put together a, a gig at Heaven under the arches. It used to be called Global Village, mm-hmm. under the arches at Charing Cross. He got all his music, his journalist friends to come and all these paparazzi took pictures of 600 people queuing up trying to get into this trendy 
con- little show concert with Charday, mm-hmm. all the record companies who had been completely indifferent started calling me. Mm-hmm. And I remember an amazing call from the head of A&R EMI, Chris, who said, Robin, um, yes, Charday, uh, I've been following your career. I love your work. And I actually did say to him, so you're very familiar with the French underground music of the late 70s mm. then, because I've never had a successful record yeah, in England yeah, ever. Yeah. So it's just bull, you know, bullshit. Um, but suddenly they all, everyone wanted to sign them. And Rob Dickens, who went on to become, uh, you know, head of Warner's Warner. for, a, mm. for a long time, years later, he said to me, oh, the one thing you have to, remember about the music businesses, Robin, is that we'll say no, and that means no. But if in six months' time something changes, so the act gets on TV or, mm, you know, mm. something, we'll be on the mm, phone straight away. Mm. And regarding what happened six months before, he said, you don't mention it and we don't mention it. Yeah. That's how it goes. When did you think you had the Sade record where you wanted it, when it was, when you really thought, this is it, I've, I've cracked it? You, you don't ever finish, Chris. It's like a painting. You just decide to stop. But, but I did have in my mind's eye the finished article. You know, I told you I'd, mm. I'd done my arranging. So I, I did finish what I thought was the process. And uh, you mixed by hand, of course, in those days. So you couldn't recall a mix and tidy it up like you can now. Make a little change in a computer takes five minutes. If you didn't like the mix, even a small part of the vocal wasn't loud enough, you had to go back into the studio and spend a whole other day. And so record companies were more inclined then to, you know, accept what you'd done. But the the thing that took me a while to realise, Sade being the example, is that, of course, I was all about the music. And I've realised over the years that you can make the best record in the world, but if the artist is not prepared to or doesn't look right or won't walk the walk and talk the talk, won't come out of their room. I think about Badly Drawn Boy, what a brilliant record that was, you know, but he was totally wouldn't, everything, the girl, same thing at the time. They wouldn't talk to the media. They wouldn't mm. talk to the press. Sade really was very obsessed with getting her image right. She'd crop all the photographs. She'd only let, you know, three photographs come out. Um, but, it, but it was a hit in America. Yes. but So how, how did... But what I've realised is that, that actually, if you've got a choice, Chris, if you and I are going to put £100,000 into, you know, Artist A or Artist B, Artist B, we think, makes the better record, but he won't come out of his room. Artist A is Madonna. The record's not quite as good, but you just spend 15 minutes with her and you think she's going to be famous. Mm. as long as she can sing adequately. And it's, you know, I tried to make the best records I could, but purely on business terms, in a way, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not being derogatory about, about Spice Girls or, you know, Little yeah. Mix or something. But when you're that good at marketing yourself, yeah. the record only has yeah. to be okay. Really. So, so is and, that why well, she- the holy grail is when you've got a good record, like Diamond Life is a good record, and a great self-marketer yeah. like Sade. That's- but is, is that why Sade's career didn't sustain? I mean, she could have been massive forever. Well, she she is, 
in a funny sort of way, because she only tours about every eight or nine years, um, she plays um, stadiums, 60, 70,000. I mean, in 2021, she earned more money than Adele, but it was from live touring. But yes, she retreated into herself suddenly, actually, strangely. Miles Copeland. And my relationship became much more with Jerry Moss because he also became a really big fan of, of the police and Sting, and he really pushed that group. I had Jerry Moss come and stay with me here in Gloucestershire a few weeks ago with Tina, his wife. He's, I mean, Jerry's now, he must be like 85 or something. He's, you know, uh, he's struggling a little bit, but, you know, in a lot of respects, you know, He's absolutely as bright as a button. We went out to dinner with somebody who worked for you, Nick Blackburn. The six of us went out for dinner, and Nick Blackburn said to him, uh, Jerry, who was, who was the best artist you ever worked with? And it didn't take a nanosecond for Jerry to say Sting. Just like that. So, you know, and, and Jerry is, I still think Jerry is very close to Sting. There's really, really close to Sting. So... Uh, he really got the police, but was there any chance that you could have signed the police to, to IRS or, or wasn't that possible? Well, at that point, no. I mean, I, I made the deal with Jerry Moss and uh, he was very supportive. And, you know, you say that, you know, he, he said he's been close to Sting. M remember, he, he, he named his horse Giacomo. Uh, he had... You and know, Zenyatta. And Zenyatta, which was the name I came up with for the for the album, you know. So he named he named his horse that won the triple crown, basically. Yeah. After yeah. a name that I had come up with for the third album, you know. So yeah, the, and and Sting was a great artist in the sense that he he was somebody that you know he recognized people being supportive, and he did want the truth, you know. I mean, that was why I worked with him so long. I was I was with him for twenty five years, and he said, "Look, Miles." Just tell me the truth, you know, and I did. I think with Jerry, he 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 realized that Sting was always positive, basically, and uh, he's he's been a good friend to Sting all the way along. I think even after I stopped being involved with Sting, Jerry has still been involved with him. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about working with the police. I mean, was that would you regard that as like the highlight of uh, of your career so far? Oh, well, I, I think you, you, you sort of have to say that, but I mean, I think there were various highlights, you know, but people often mistake, you know, the important things. And what I tried to talk about in the book, for instance, why I called it two steps forward, one step back is that, and, and I'm, I'm sure you'll say this as well, is that for every one of us that, you know, has success and we can, we can think we're all smart and all that, but we're always going to have mistakes. You know, I think, you had you had said one of your guys had, had uh, Terry Ellis, your partner, had, had rejected David Bowie. You know, well, you know, there's a step back for you. Um, we all make mistakes, but we also keep moving forward. You know, so that's really the secret of it. But you know, I've had people say, well, you know, what's the most important show you ever did with you know? And they would think I would say something like the Police and Shea Stadium, and I go, ah, well, no, not really. The most important show we ever did was the four people in northern New York. And the police walked out, and they this was on their first tour. They were not, you know, Jerry Moss didn't know them from Adam. Uh, nobody in America, we were told when we arrived in America to go home. 
And we were playing in, in this dive and uh, they walked out on stage and they saw four people who bought tickets and they said, well, we're an unknown group from England. Let's give these people a hell of a show. And they, they did a blistering show. One of the four people was a DJ at MIT University in Boston. They gave him the Roxanne single, which had, been, had come out in England on A&M. And uh, he went back to Boston and started banging that single. And he, he, loved, he loved the group and he loved that single. Next thing we know, it's being picked up by BCN. It became a regional hit. And in January of the, of the, of the following year, Jerry Moss is looking through Billboard and sees A&M Records next to Roxanne, the police. So I get this phone call from Jerry Moss, you know. Hello, this is Jerry Moss. Uh, um, you're Miles Copeland. Uh, I see there's this band called The Police, and there's A&M next to it. Is that my band in America? And I said, well, yes, it is. And he said, well, we better get him. We better work the record. And I said, yeah, you better. He said, get the band over to America. So my, my brother Ian was at this point working as an agent at the Paragon Agency in Macon. I called up my brother and said, Ian, get another tour together quickly. And off we went. We went back to America, and that was the start of the police. So really, the, 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 the message was that you never know where that, that success is going to come from. You know, it could be some small newspaper, some Mickey Mouse, something or other, you know, but from small beginnings, you know, from... From, from an acorn, great oak trees grow, you know, so you never be too proud of, you know, playing to a few people or whatever, because you never know who's in the audience. And that was sort of the lesson of, of the police. I think that's, that's really, that, that's absolutely so true. And it happens right across the music industry. You never know when that break's going to come and who's going to be responsible for it. But can you, can you remember the first time you heard uh, Every Breath You Take? Well, I could tell that was, you know, that was a hit from right away. My brother didn't do you, like Do you remember that, that moment when, when, when they first played it to you or you first heard it in the studio and thinking, oh, my God, this is a monster? Well, I, I knew that was a hit. But by then, the police were already big, you know. I mean, yeah, but that, that, was, that was like big going to monster. Yeah. But my brother Stuart didn't like the song because there's very little drumming in it. You know, it's basically, you know, a very, very simple drum pattern. And in effect, I mean, Sting basically used the demo, basically, as the drum. So Stuart never really liked the song, you know. But actually, the song that was, if I had to, you know, take some credit for, for discovering a great song, I mean, Every Breath You Take was pretty obvious. The police were already big. You know, that was the song that was obviously going to be a hit single. But, you know, the group didn't want to play me Roxanne, you know. So I go to the studio on the first album and I hear all the songs and, you know, they really were selling themselves as a punk group. And the album really wasn't particularly punky, you know. Uh, it wasn't, ag wasn't as aggressive and nasty as a lot of the, the punks had, had come across as being. So finally, there was one more song left to play. And, uh, you know, I said, well, okay, you got any more? And they said, well, there's one more song, but we're not going to play it because it's a ballad and you're going to hate it, you know, thinking, of course, that I was looking for a punk group. So uh, I said, well, I'm here. Play me the damn song. And they said, no, we're not going to play it. And it went back and forth. Finally, the engineer got tired of us arguing about playing this song. So he just put it on. And as I'm listening to Roxanne, I'm thinking to myself, 
Jesus, this is this is the song that's true to what the police really are. This is special. And when the song finished, I would look at these three guys who were waiting for me to lambast them with, boy, was that a lot of crap. And I said, gentlemen, that's the song that's going to change our lives. That's bigger than me. I'm going to take it to AM Records tomorrow and get you a deal. And that's what I did. And they they looked at me like, what? You like that? And I think back in Sting's mind must have been things like he was thinking, well, if Miles likes that, I think I've got a few more of those up my sleeve, like exactly. walking on the moon and you yeah. know, whatever. Thank you for listening to Right on the Nail. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review and a rating on your podcast app. And why not share the episode with a friend or family member who you think would find it interesting? The episode was produced by Tom Platts and is published by New Thinking. And catch you all next time on Right on the Nail.